welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agdarab. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. Susan McKenzie is a spiritual director, retreat leader, and main master naturalist. Her life's work engages individuals and groups that wish to align their lives and organizational missions with deeply held values and a shared sense of purpose. Cultivating creativity, imagination, and spaciousness are key elements of her work with individuals, churches, and nonprofits. Susan earned a doctorate at the University of Michigan School of Natural Resources, focused on ecosystem management and institutional innovation. Susan lives in Maine with her husband. She enjoys time in nature and is passionate about playing SATB recorders, particularly Renaissance and early Baroque pieces. Spring has sprung. New life is teeming. Resurrection Sunday and Easter tide are right around the corner, and in my part of the world, the streets are still lined with what looks like confetti following weeks of beautiful cherry blossom blooms. We also celebrate Earth Day this month. Even as we witness biodiversity waning, people going hungry for lack of nutrition, the earth is crying out. There's a quote that I hope you pay special attention to in this piece. Susan talks about sustainability as the long-term environment where all things, all creation may flourish and achieve their highest purpose. Mm. Sustainability never sounded so good. Sustainability never sounded so much like the beloved community. A recent study in the UK showed Generation Z is providing inspiration with 45% having stopped purchasing certain brands because of ethical or sustainability concerns. How can buying locally sourced goods or eating seasonal produce or reducing single-use plastic use lead us to new life? In mind, body, spirit, and community. How do these practices help us to build the beloved community? Susan speaks on this and more at a previously recorded 2019 five-day academy that took place in Iowa. Listen on, dear ones, and may your experience of God and yourself and the earth be one of awe and wonder and commitment. So Monday, we, we talked together about the universe story. Uh, systems, science, principles of evolution, we shared our experience of God and nature. Reflect, we reflected on the teaching, the healing, the befriending power of the earth. It was our thinking day. Yesterday, we learned a little bit more about the state of the earth. We faced the evidence of degradation of nature on a global scale, and we acknowledged that something is not right. It was a feeling day. Today is a day to seek out a different path. 
We will reflect on the spiritual roots of the earth crisis, and we're going to look to science and faith to help us turn in a different direction. This is our turning day. We live in a technologically driven, fast-paced, indoors-oriented society whose predominant worldview is built on scarcity, fear, and zero-sum competition. If you're not a winner, you're a loser. But nature offers us a view through a different lens. In nature, we observe healthy relationships to knit my presentation into Ray. In nature, we understand that healthy relationships evolve and that change yields diversity. We learn that diversity in relationships gives rise to resilience, adaptability, and ultimately survival. So in nature, we glimpse the possibilities of a healthy human enterprise, namely community built on diversity, interdependence, adaptability, and resilience. Yesterday, we looked at environmental degradation. But there is another facet of the predicament that we must address. Our earth crisis has spiritual roots, right? We're not just estranged from the earth. We are estranged from ourselves, and we're often estranged from God. When we lose our sense of being embedded in the, riddle, in the rhythm of nature, in the cycle of seasons, we lose our way, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I'm sure that at some level we have all witnessed or experienced that growing chasm between a sense of inner spiritual meaning and outer material wealth. (coughs) We see the fallout in our economy. We see the fallout in our politics. And we see the fallout in our frayed social fabric in the United States. More and more, people want to know how to respond to a human condition where unparalleled prosperity bumps right up against emptiness, injustice, earth destruction, and despair. In their search for real answers, Some people are turning to religion, and rightly so. 
Religion helps us answer those important questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Religion also helps us answer the big questions. What does it mean to live a good life? How should faith inform my daily choices? And these are questions that most of you, if not all of you in this room, have helped people to answer for much of your lives. These questions catapult religion right into the center of contemporary issues. I believe that the challenge of the church is to find its prophetic voice and speak to the hunger for meaning, offering words that are both humble and hopeful, while guiding those of us who despair and those of us who don't care on a path toward reconciliation and wholeness. That's quite a job description. Sure. Um, the, uh, the, the, challenge of, the challenge to the church is to find its prophetic voice and speak to the hunger for meaning, offering words that are humble <coughs> and hopeful, while guiding those who despair and those who don't care on a path toward reconciliation and wholeness. Dorothy Sowell suggested that prophetic criticism consists of mobilizing people to their real restless grief and nurturing them away from those who are inept at listening and indifferent in their response. We've got a job to do. And even scientists believe the voice of faith is essential to human survival on Earth. More than two decades ago, over 100 Nobel laureates wrote an open letter to the religious community in which they said, in part, quote, Problems of such magnitude and solutions demanding so broad a perspective must be recognized as having a religious as well as a scientific dimension. We urgently appeal to the world religious community to commit in word and deed to preserve the environment of the earth. Efforts to safeguard and cherish the environment must be infused with a vision of the sacred. I've read that a thousand times. I still get chills. That is, 
that is the scientific community breaking out of the worldview of the second revolution and calling forth something other than just head smarts. It's, it's a remarkable statement. They're saying measurable knowledge is not the ultimate. There's some mystery out there that we neglected, but we realize we need. <clears throat> More recently, Gus Speth, a former US EPA administrator, said, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity, ecosystem collapse, climate chaos. I thought with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. We scientists don't know how to do that. The longest journey, right, from the head to the heart. They recognize the need for allies on that journey. And no wonder the church is being pressed to act. Larry Rasmussen, a retired uh, religion professor from Union Theological, has said, What is faith but the capacity to glimpse the earth as it might be transformed by grace beyond the world weariness of today? Amen, Larry. I'm going to read that again. What is faith? but the capacity to glimpse the earth as it might be transformed by grace beyond the world weariness of today. So that door was opened, an invitation was extended, but the church hasn't really walked through the the threshold yet. Reverend Wesley Granberg Michelson of the Reformed Church of America has explored the answers to the question, why has the church overlooked earth care as a missional priority? And he makes several points that are worth considering. First, he points out that the fifth century was formative for the Christian church. Europe in the 5th century was in chaos. It was the fall of the Roman Empire. It was a time of massive invasions and migration. Augustine, who lived in that time, and whose theology laid the foundation of modern religion, was particularly focused on the ascent of the spirit out of the material body, off the earth, and away to heaven. So his primary religious interest was in that vertical relationship. 
between humanity and God. You remember yesterday, Ray also talking about the horizontal the relationships, you know, the relationships of humanity with other. He paid little, little attention to the horizontal, and the institutional church followed Augustine's lead, focusing primarily on the relationship of humanity to God. Second, Granberg Michelson uh, references the bubonic plague that swept through 14th century Europe with tremendous physical and psychological effect on Western theology. More than half the population of Europe died during the plague. That's about 60 million people. And the plague hit people of all ages and social status. And they went from good health to painful, unsightly death in four days. The 14th century knew nothing about um, bacteria, knew nothing about fleas on rodents and how the plague was communicated. But anguished people looked to an all-powerful God to redeem and save them out of this suffering world. The bubonic plague for a Eurocentric church cemented the idea that earthly life is an unhappy prequel, an unhappy prequel to a more joyous uh, eternity. So the church preached redemption and salvation in heaven, not on earth. Third, the Protestant church was born out of the scientific revolution, 15th to 17th century, and was deeply influenced by it. And you remember the scientific revolution preceded the industrial revolution. Francis Bacon was an intellectual giant during the scientific revolution, and he believed wholeheartedly in the superiority of the human mind. He's the one we can thank for sixth or seventh grade science class when you learned about hypothesis testing. That was his major contribution. He laid out a fact-based, proof-oriented scientific method of research. He believed that humans had a right and an obligation to exercise control over the world. And his views influenced Christian thought, especially Protestantism, which was being formed during Bacon's life. So with the superiority of the human mind came a culture and a theology that placed humans at the center of purpose and meaning in the universe. The church understood nature as God-given material for humanity's good works. Fourth, the Protestant church 
the Christian church overall, but the Protestant church has been somewhat insular. We have not gleaned the wisdom of other faiths and other cultures. You know, the Eastern Orthodox Church saw Jesus as one who reconciled the whole cosmos to God, right? They have a green patriarch. Eastern religions have not drawn such a strong distinction between material and spiritual worlds. And we're learning quite a bit about indigenous cultures and how they also have some wisdom to share on theology of earth care. So the church has preached a Eurocentric second revolution message from its founding forward. And frankly, I offer no judgment on the church. I love church. The church reflects its people's best efforts to make sense of the human experience given the limitations of knowledge that they have at the time. That's our history. But we now have new knowledge. We are well into the third revolution. So what's our future? Well, I'd like all of you to do a little exercise with me. Put down your pens for a second. And I'd like you to just fold your arms in a way that's natural. Just just fold your arms. Now fold them the other way. A little harder, right? Takes a little bit of effort. There are things that we, there are patterns that we have, right? There are patterns of behavior we have that we don't even think about. We need to learn how to cross our arms in a different way. How do we do that? By transforming the way we live on earth and use the resources of our beloved creation, by cultivating a theology of nature as the theater of God's grace. Not surprisingly, science and religion point the way. So we're going to look at each in turn, and we'll start with science. So modern science tells us that the survival of all life on Earth, as we know it, is linked to the Earth's long-term health. So the concept of sustainability is a promising framework for an earth preserving world view. Sustainability means providing an ongoing context in which all things may flourish and achieve their highest purpose. I'm going to say that again. Sustainability means providing an ongoing context in which all things may flourish and achieve their highest purpose. So if we deconstruct that sentence a little bit, ongoing context, that means long-term. All things may flourish. All parts 
of the earth community achieve their highest purpose affirms the inherent value of all God's creation. There are six characteristics of sustainability that I think are relevant to our work. The first is participation. We are all stakeholders on this spaceship Earth, and we have not only the opportunity, but an obligation to articulate our needs and our ideas as members of a shared community. Participation. Action. I don't know who coined that phrase. You sometimes see it on a bumper sticker. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Participation. Second characteristic of sustainability that I think is relevant is sufficiency. What do we truly need in order to live safely, comfortably, and wholly on earth? And and I love the word holy because it works all three ways when you're talking about sustainability. W-H-O-L-E-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and H-O-L-Y, right? What do we need to live wholly on earth? Sustainability creates floors and ceilings on consumption based on our needs, not on our wants or greeds. Material simplicity and spiritual richness is a third characteristic of sustainability. Rabbi Ishmar Schwartz of the Jewish Theological Theological Seminary um, once asked, whatever happened to the virtue of frugality? You probably know frugality better than I do if you have lived in Iowa for generations and so many of you come off of a farming background. That background is generations away from me. But whatever happened to the virtue of frugality? And here's an even more important question. What does it mean when too much is not enough? Ouch. You know, the Buddhists speak of the hungry ghosts. And the hungry ghosts are individuals, beings that have tiny, tiny pencil-thin throats. And they try to feed, feed, feed their hunger by stuffing those little tiny pencil throats. But the hunger is not for stuff. It's a spiritual hunger that we have. It's a hunger for meaning that will never be sated through consumption of material goods. Equity is another characteristic of sustainability. And equity is the basic fairness in the distribution of goods and services across nations, across species, across genders, and across time. 
accountability. We're accountable to one another and to all creation for the choices we make. Accountability is cross-generational and cross-species. And then finally, local self-determination. Problems should be solved. Decisions should be made at the level closest to the actions intended consequences. Sustainability can be summed up in a statement by Immanuel Kant, who said, behave in such a way that the effects of your actions are always compatible with the permanence of nature and of human life on earth. As we look at the characteristics of sustainability, there are so many openings where the Christian church and people of faith can engage and contribute to the dialogue. Sufficiency, equity, material simplicity, spiritual richness, this is in our wheelhouse. They all cry out for spiritual insight and leadership. So when we join a Christian theology of earth with the science of sustainability, we get an earth-affirming Christian faith that may speak with conviction on a subject of seminal importance in the 21st century. Thank you, Susan, for those questions. Thank you for that framing on sustainability, participation, sufficiency, material simplicity, and spiritual hunger, equity, accountability, and local self-determination. I will be ruminating on those aspects of sustainability for a while. As I think about sustainability, I, I think about Earth Day. And the theme for this year is invest in our planet. And this through line of sustainability continues to come back to me. And I think of how are we being sustainable and sharing spiritual practices? How are we being sustainable in how we live and move together in the city? And I think of activist and elder Dolores Huerta saying, Every moment is an organizing opportunity. Every person is a potential activist. Every minute, a chance to change the world. I believe the same can be said of the resurrection. As we think about sustainability, every moment, every moment is a resurrection opportunity. Every person, a potential witness. Every minute, a chance to change the world. How have you experienced sustainability as a path to resurrection and new life? How have the practices 
of buying locally sourced goods or eating seasonal produce or reducing single-use plastics, asking corporations to operate on ethics that you share, values that you hold. How has that led to new life for you and your community? As always, so grateful to these wisdom guides. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Susan, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org. And please share this podcast with others. May it be a nudge, a guide, and honoring of intuitions you've long held and a means for justice in your lives and the lives of all for all of creation.